I love, love um, ending that last time of worship with that song, with declaring that, that we are no longer slaves to fear. Um, because what I want to start with this morning is just asking the question of, have you ever done something um, risky? You know, you, are you, how many like play it safe people do we have? You got to know, very cautious. What about live on the wild side? Kind of crazy, risky, dangerous kind of people. Um, that, that feeling of like dangerous, what it feels like to be out on a limb and do something dangerous. Now for me, like, you know, going into Toys R Us, you know, to buy batteries with your kids, you know, that's dangerous, right? Um, asking a woman when she's due, if you're not sure she's pregnant, that's dangerous. Um, passing a cop on the right, you know, um, that's dangerous and stupid, you know, not that I have any experience with that. Um, for some of you guys, pretending not to hear the baby crying, yeah, that can be dangerous, I know. Um, I heard about a woman a couple of years ago that for her 92nd birthday, okay, 92, went skydiving, okay? Her name is James Brockstruck, and when she was asked about it, like, hey, you're 92, you went skydiving, you know, she said, quote, I don't know what gave me the idea, but I thought... I guess I'll jump out of a plane, you know? I like it about her, but I don't know, but it just seems a little dangerous when you're 92 to be skydiving. Um, or what some people do, crazy stunts. I mean, they make me like, you know, put on your helmet, you know, like get in mom mode, like this is too dangerous, like some motorcycle stunts. You see these people that do these crazy, dangerous things that you say nobody in their right mind should be doing that. Um, or this guy on a unicycle, um, I don't know what he's thinking. I have no idea what is going on here, but that just seems dangerous. Sometimes people get into dangerous situations um, with animals. Um, this poor guy, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he's going to win. Um, this hippo chasing him, uh, this girl here, I, I don't know the purpose of this. Um, there's tons of these pictures online. It's like, what are they actually doing with their head in the mouth of an alligator? Here's what the word dangerous means. You, maybe you found yourself and now you're thinking about your dangerous situations. Here's what it means. The first definition is likely to cause or result in harm or injury. Okay, like that's likely to result in harm or injury. The second definition is involving risk um, or difficulty. You know, when we're, when we're doing the, when they're doing those crazy stunts. So this is what I believe as we just sang, we're no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. I believe today as we talk about the heartbeat of the church, because we're in this series called I Love My Church, that God is calling us to become the dangerous church that Jesus dreamed about. And maybe you're thinking that that's a little off, right? Because the church is supposed to be like a safe place, right? Like a refuge kind of place, a, a restoring kind of place, which all of that's true. But we, the church the people of the church, we were also meant to be a little dangerous. Like the people of God, on mission for God, doing everything with God. And we should be dangerous in both sense of the definition. Like a people, a church whose, whose mission is actually going to harm or injure, damage, destroy the schemes of Satan in our lives, in our families, in our friendships, in our schools, in our dating relationships, in our communities, in our world. 
I mean, that's why Paul said words like this to the church. When he said to the church in in Ephesus, he said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, that's legit. Like, that's the reality of our battle. And then Paul goes on to explain what, like, this armor that we're going to need is. Like, it's the belt of truth, and it's the breastplate of righteousness, and it's feet fitted with readiness and peace, and a shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But what's so important for us to know is that this armor of God, these weapons, are not only defensive, like where we would just be able to really take a stand when people come at us. No, truth and righteousness and readiness and peace and salvation, these are also offensive weapons. That we could be a dangerous people that puts a hurting on whatever scheme or plot or ploy our enemy has for us. And the other part of that definition that would involve risk or difficulty, this would be that we're a church that doesn't play it safe. Like we wouldn't opt for comfort. We wouldn't be afraid to take risk for the kingdom of God. We wouldn't fold under pressure or difficulty, but we would expect it because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see it, and that's the guy that we're following. We would take risk in communicating our stories of what God has done in our lives, even when it's uncomfortable. We would take risk in investing in people who are far from God. We would take risk to live beyond ourselves, to give beyond ourselves, to pack our bags and go somewhere. I know you guys are taking all these trips to Jamaica, to our home take children in, that we would take risks so that people may never meet this side of eternity could experience the hope we have found in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of people we were called to be. A dangerous people making a difference. A church where the powers of darkness tremble and shake and say, hey, don't mess with that church. Like, don't mess with gateway because people are getting saved there. And the poor are being cared for there. And the forgotten are being remembered there and valued there. And paralyzed with fear and addiction and past regrets are being set free. And the ones with self-worth are, are finding God's unfailing love for them. And they're starting to live with confidence. And racial and economic walls are crumbling down in that place. And families who we've helped tear apart are being put back together. Our plans, our schemes aren't working. That church is dangerous. So here's the question this morning. What if, I mean, what if we, we the church, because we are the church, all of us, began to live a little dangerous, came out from hiding behind the brush and allowed God to light or relight a flame in us? What if? What if we began a revolution? Didn't back down from persecution, became a part of the solution, got in the business of the distribution of love, grace, mercy, that our grips would loosen. What if? What if we knew what God said? Let his word wrap around our heart and our head more than words on a page collecting dust unread. Instead, we live like this book is alive and not dead. What if? What if our families were thriving? A place of peace. No depriving, no striving, more than just surviving, but rising up to give, serve, invest, care, guide, to set aside our pride, to stay beside a place where children confide and where love is supplied and where grace will preside. What if? 
What if you're 12, 14, 16, 20, but live with a courage unlike many, possess valor, boldness, and faith plenty. Let God write your story from the beginning. Hand him the pen and let him start pinning that all the some days I'll be, they're phony, they're fleeting. You are worthy now and your life has meaning. What if? What if we unleashed compassion? Like flung our faith into action and opened our hands, our homes, our wallets, our doors to the lonely, the outcast, the hurting, the poor. We gave to our neighbors and didn't keep score. Proclaim the goodness of God like never before. What if? And what if, church, our what ifs were more than just words that we say? More than just a game we play. What if we didn't stray or sway or live our lives in shades of gray? What if instead today we prayed, God, we are yours. Have your way, I think we'd be dangerous. And that is what was happening in the early church that we've been looking at starting last week. This little movement of Jesus' followers began to live on a dangerous mission for him and it began to change the world. A professor, Rodney Starr, he's a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, he wrote this book called The Rise in Christianity. And he calculated how crazy it spread in the Roman Empire, like at a rate of 40% per decade, okay? So in the year 40 AD, a few years after Jesus had died on the cross and resurrected, there's about 5,000 total Christians in the world. And then you fast forward to 350 AD and there's 33 million Christians. Like nothing had ever spread like this before. 56% of the Roman Empire was believing in the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So while this huge Roman Empire is beginning to collapse, this little movement of Jesus followers is spreading. I mean, if we could like, um, you know, Marty McFly back to that time, you know, and show up there, and we had to put our money on, you know, we got the Roman Empire over here. I mean, it's the Roman Empire. And then we got this like Jesus and his ragtag crew of, you know, his motley little crew of followers. And we had to put money on who was going to be around in 2,000 years, nobody's putting money on Jesus and his crew. But yet 2,000 years later, here we are in this gymnasium singing to him, worshiping Jesus and giving our kids names like Peter and, and Mary and Paul and giving our dogs names like Caesar and Nero, right? I mean, that's crazy. But nothing had ever spread like this good news. I mean, this was really good news, the good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it could change a human heart. And listen, the good news wasn't just that someone could be forgiven from sin and set free in Jesus Christ. The good news is that anyone, anyone could be. And that was so countercultural for the time. I mean, this is where living in a class system was all people had ever been a part of. The the separation of people groups was very distinct. So the idea of the church, that's why we love the church so much, it was revolutionary. Because there was all these groups. There were ethnic groups and philosophical groups. There were nations and cities and states and families and um, tribal groups and religions. You know, there's who's acceptable and who's not based on what you wore or who your family was, who was in and who was out. But the church was none of these. Like it was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before because now you had these followers of Jesus showing up and saying things like this in Colossians 3.1. In this new life, it doesn't matter. 
If you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters. Like this is an all skate. Everybody gets in. This was revolutionary. If you've ever been um, to Disneyland or Disney World, right, you've no doubt ridden that ride. Um, It's a small world. After all, where the most annoying song in the world gets stuck in your head. Um, I'm so sorry if that happened to you just now and it's going to be stuck in your head all day. But listen, where did that idea come from? The idea of people from every tribe, every nationality, every race, gender, and status all coming together. I promise you, you cannot find a movement before the church of Jesus Christ that actually sought to include every single human being, regardless of skin color, nationality, how much money you made, gender, age, health, down and out, up and out. All were included. All were invited to be loved and to be transformed. There had never been a community like this. You see why this was such good news? There had never even been the idea of a community like this. Yet it was his idea, this crucified carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. It's how he lived. That's why the church looked like this. Jesus showed up and he walked this planet. And what he did was elevate the dignity and status of every single human being he came in contact with. Down and out, poor, widowed, prostitutes, cheaters, thieves, fishermen, women, children, slaves, people with issues and illness and reputation. He flipped everything upside down and he changed it all. He made a way for all of us to be in. There's no us and them anymore. There's no inside, outside anymore. No acceptables and unacceptables anymore. We are all one. And listen, we cannot lose this heartbeat. The heartbeat of the church is the heartbeat of Jesus. People. To leverage our lives so that as many people as possible can experience the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. So that everyone can get in on this good news if we believe it is good news. When I was 12, um, my family moved from rural Kentucky um, to Las Vegas Nevada to plant a church. So slight culture shock, right? You know, I moved from a town of like 7,000 people, including the cows, um, to Vegas. And so I'm showing up. It's the 90s. So I think I went from like yarn bows in my hair. I was 12 to like cross-color jeans. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. I was like a little bit of identity crisis. But we set up and tore down just like this in a, in a YMCA we started this church plant, and I was 12 years old. My dad would preach in front of, like, a, a mural of a gymnast in an awkward, you know, pose behind him. Um, but, man, looking back on those years in Vegas, those teenage years, being a part of that church plant is where I realized and first came to understand that the gospel is for alcoholics and exotic dancers and high rollers and the guy digging through his car cushions to find another quarter. I saw the good news of Jesus Christ come alive to wine goddesses at Caesar's palace and runaways camping in cheap motels and dealers and bangers and addicts. When I was 17, as I mentioned, I went on a journey of my own of running away from God and his pursuit of me coming back to him and I discovered that the gospel, the good news is for the people pleasing, the conning, the cheat, the impure, deceitful, materialistic rebel. When I was 19, I had the opportunity to live in Haiti for a year, which was a year that changed my life. And I discovered that the good news of Jesus Christ is for the poor and it's for the forgotten and for the illiterate and the uneducated. 
It's for the oppressed, enslaved, for witch doctors, and for people dying. I saw the gospel bring people to their feet, clapping outside of mud huts. I learned that it was for children and orphans, for people that are starving, literally, and starving for hope. In our 20s, my husband and I had the privilege um, at working at some incredible churches in the Midwest and the South of this nation. And I learned that the gospel is for frat boys and girls gone wild and the kid that's been showing up in Sunday school since he could breathe. I learned that it was for firemen and farmers and truck drivers and stockbrokers and stay-at-home moms, for rednecks and seminary graduates, for people with secret lives and stagnant faith, for politicians, factory workers, and self-righteous church leaders. It was for families falling apart and families pretending to keep it all together. So when we planted Mission Church almost five years ago, I naively thought, well, I've seen it all. And I was praying Like, do it again, God, and do it here, do it among us. And little did I know that God would break through every box that I had put the good news in. Not not here so much, but in my heart. And now I have stood on the beach of the Pacific Ocean and watched people come up out of that water in baptism, and I have stood speechless before God. I think of my friend Deanna, who is a former stripper turned prostitute, turn porn star that God has so radically transformed in the last five years she is unrecognizable she went and spent a year living at a refuge for women God changed her life she's now in her last semester of seminary and in June she married someone who's going to be a pastor from her class I'm not kidding when I'm with her I'm Jesus doesn't just make us better he makes us new he makes us new And she says that she wants her life to just be a passionate thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for her. I think about a friend who was charged with manslaughter while driving under the influence. Soccer mom. And her circle of friends walked away from her. And other moms in the schoolyard circled up and said terrible things about her. And there was awful things in comment threads online and notes dropped off at her door. And I've seen her find community. I was there when she opened her Bible for the first time. We were doing a study on Rahab. And she said, I don't know anything about Rahab. I know a lot about rehab. I got nothing on Rahab. You know, and I said, well, open up. And I got to be there two years ago and watch her come up out of that water, surrounded by people who have become her family. I think about Keith, who is the largest distributor of porn on the West Coast, nicknamed King Keith. And over the last five years, I have seen him find Jesus Christ. I've seen him seek and work his recovery, walk away from the industry, and listen, millions of dollars. Give his life to Jesus Christ. Buy plane tickets to take him back to Memphis, Tennessee, where he grew up, to make amends with people he had hurt, to pay back people he had robbed, to stand at graves of people that he had not been able to say he was sorry to. And I am not kidding you, this man is the most evangelistic man that I know. We like want to put a box on our connect card to say like, how did you hear about mission? Keith is like one of the boxes because he cannot shut up about what Jesus has done in his life and in his family. I think about Carrie, a neighbor of mine who called me one night and asked me to help check her into a mental facility because she wanted to end her life after being caught in the act of adultery. And I sat in that intake room and I watched how this weight, it was like 
barbells hitting the floor as she shed her shame. And she began her process of healing. And I have now seen restoration in that marriage up close and forgiveness up close. Listen, I've watched homeless friends come up out of that water, terminally ill, people with special needs, victims of rape, hell's angel bikers, kids with two moms, people counting days clean. And over and over again, it's like God is saying, you think you've seen it all? <laughs> like we're just getting started. Because who is the good news for? Everyone. Anyone. And that is our story in this room. Are we still amazed that the grace of God would reach even us? Because we cannot lose sight of that or we will lose the heartbeat of what matters most to God. And that is people. People. So I'm just going to give us just a couple of dangerous things to keep in our minds. They're there on your outlines. Um, The first one is this. As a church, let's be committed to move towards the mess. Some of my favorite words in the New Testament are in John chapter 8, right, where there's this woman, and she's been caught in the act of adultery, and she's thrown down in the dirt in front of, like, this huge crowd, right, right where you want to be when you've been caught in the act of something. There's a large crowd of people waiting to hear a sermon. She's drug out of the home, probably just wrapped in a sheet, thrown in the dirt in front of Jesus and in front of this huge crowd. Right, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus in this story and they're using this woman as like a pawn in their political chess game. Just for a moment, I mean, just for a moment, put yourself in her shoes. Have you ever been caught in the act of something? Ever had it public? Can you imagine how embarrassed, how ashamed, how trapped she felt, how afraid, how dirty How hopeless. And there's all these people standing over her in judgment. And they're making a case. And they're demanding a verdict. And they're holding rocks ready to stone her. This is life and death. And then these words come in John 8 verse 6. It just simply says that Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And we're never told like what Jesus was writing down there in the dirt. Like, some people think he was writing, like, the sins of other people in the crowd down in the dirt so they could be reminded, like, hey, you haven't really done a great job yourself. (laughs) Um, Other people think since God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, that's probably what Jesus was writing with his finger down in the dirt, like, had everyone in the crowd kept all of these. But it doesn't really tell us. I don't really know. I just know that the coolest part for me is simply that Jesus stooped down because that's where she was. And he met her right where she was, right in the dirt, right in the mess of it, right in the tears, right in the embarrassment. That's where she was. While everyone else was towering over her in judgment, Jesus stooped down. And this is what he's done for me. He got right in the middle of my mess. I don't know about you, but he lifted me out of the pit of despair out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God, that many will see what he has done and be amazed and they will put their trust in the Lord. He meets me exactly where I am. He meets you exactly where you are, not where you pretend to be, but where you are. And I am so grateful for a God who still stoops down and is willing to get into the dirt with us, willing to get in the mess with us, And if we desire to become churches, to have our heartbeat line up with his, 
to have life groups and, and families and communities who reflect who Jesus Christ is, then I believe he is calling us to meet people right where they are, right in the mess of it, embarrassed, trapped, afraid, used, dirty, confused, exposed, hopeless. That's where we meet people, that we get down in the dirt, that we move towards the mess, and we are only able to do this when we realize how Jesus met us there and how much we still need the grace of God. My mom, um, who's been following Jesus for over 50 years, um, Scott talked about her, her giggle is like contagious, you know. We tease her that she was like born in the church nursery, she's never done anything wrong in her life, and she's like, oh, I have to, I've been prideful, you know. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, okay, whatever, mom. You know, that's, that's my mom. You know, she's like a saint. And she spends a lot of her time now um, volunteering with women who are coming out of the sex industry. She actually was Deanna's mentor. She mentored Deanna for a year in the program, and then Deanna moved in with my parents and literally became family for the next two and a half years. But Deanna's life and story is so much different than my mom's life and story, and I'll never forget my mom telling me that before she said yes to mentoring Deanna, she prayed and she asked God, can I even do this? Like, can I even relate to her? And she told me she felt like God said to her, as long as you know that you need as much grace as she does, then you can do this. Then I'll allow you to be a part of her life. Knowing our own desperate need for the grace of God, not forgetting it, that's what enables us to meet people where they are. Strategy is great. Doing is great. Planning is great. Being dependent on the grace of God is a non-negotiable if we want to be a dangerous church. And it is Christ's love that we experience. That's what compels us to be a church that is all about reaching people. Where we don't get to say, hey, no, not you. No, not with that reputation. Not with that criminal record. Not with that issue. But we are a church that says, welcome. Welcome. And is it messy? Yes. <laughs> is it a little dangerous? Yes. Does it take time? Definitely. But it is the heartbeat of Jesus. And it has to remain the heartbeat of his church. Another kind of dangerous challenge is to remember what counts. Because the church over time has gotten this reputation, right? That it's the external things that matter. Like how good we clean up. And, and like how how many rules we keep and how much we do and what we don't do and we don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do, you know, we've got all these external lists going on. Listen, the early church faced this too where people were trying to put a lot of external expectations on these brand new believers. And so Paul, which if you know anything about him, he's this guy that had his life radically transformed by Jesus Christ. In his former life, he was all about the external, all about the rituals, all about the traditions, all about the qualifications, and he had them all. But then Jesus changed everything, and so he was committed for people to really get it. So he's always writing these letters to these new churches going, don't forget what it's all about. Remember what what counts. And in this, this letter to this church in, in Galatia, he says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised, um, which if you are in fourth grade or under, you don't know what that is, ask your mom later. It'll be awesome. Um, they just want you to look good. They just want you to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone, that's it, can save. 
And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. Like Paul's writing this letter to a bunch of new believers, really wanting them to get the good news and to live it and to share it. And he's recognizing there's some toxic attitudes that have made their way into this church in Galatia and sometimes make their way into our churches and they begin to contaminate everything going, hey, I know you thought this was good news, actually bad news, you're still not good enough. Still got a few things that you need to do. Still got some external things that you need to clean up. And Paul's going, it's not about a show. Church isn't a show. It's not about external. It's not about appearances. What counts, he says in Galatians 6.15, is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. Like God has always been way more concerned with our hearts and who we're becoming than how good we look or how good we fake it. It's always been about transformation, not about what we do or don't do. And listen, it's an inside-out kind of thing. And when when real transformation, when we remember what counts and that's actually happening in our lives, that is what is contagious to other people. And when we don't, when we've forgotten what really counts and we're not being transformed on the inside, but we have all these expectations on other people and how they are supposed to act and those people out there and those requirements, that is what turns people off and why they don't want to walk into our churches. And to be honest, there are way too many Christians who turn into legalistic, nitpicking joy suckers, right? And they're always saying something, you know, negative about their church or their job or their team or the government. And they're complaining on Facebook or or Twitter and they're easily offended and they're cynical. They're absolutely the last people that waiters want to see walk in on a Sunday afternoon, you know? And that shouldn't be. Like we may be dressed up on the outside and keeping all the rules, but we've forgotten what matters most. And man, if that has been your experience with people who are following Jesus Christ, like we apologize. Like we don't always get it right. But when you're being transformed from the inside out, we ought to be the most engaging, appealing, pleasant people on our block. At our schools, in our workplace, in our apartment complex, in every restaurant, drive-thru, or department store. Right at every checkout line, in every parking lot. Because we're good news people. Like, that's contagious. Sometimes I think we need to look in the mirror and go, remember this is good news? Like, hey, you've been rescued. Because when you're really loving people and not looking for anything in return, you're going to get some questions. And when you have peace in the middle of a storm, people are going to think, what is up with that? And when you're patient with your kids and you don't lose your cool like you used to, people will wonder, what in the world happened to her? And when you stay faithful, you stay married to your husband, you stay married to your wife, you finish what you started in work or in life or in relationship, that's rare. And people begin to ask why. And when you're fun to be around and full of life and not easily annoyed or or irritated and you treat people well, you become a magnet. Something is so attractive in your life that people want what you've got. And listen, I want this to be true of every Jesus follower. I want it to be true in my life. But as I have the opportunity to speak here this morning, be people that make up Gateway Church, that our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, our community want to come to. Like they're the first people they think of. They're thinking, I may not believe everything that they believe, but those gateway people are awesome because they forgive you when you wrong them. And they're so generous 
And they give you second chances and third chances and they're fun to be around. Those gateway people are the best tippers. Like I can't wait for them to come into my restaurant on Sunday afternoon. They work with the best attitude. I always want them on my team. There's just something so real about them that is contagious. Move towards the mess. Be willing to meet people where they are. And remember what counts because that is what is contagious and attractive, loving people until they ask why. And lastly, stand by the door. Stand by the door. Sometimes it's easy for us to get comfortable, right? In our churches, like we've got our church and our bubble and our assigned seat and our parking spot and our friends, you know, and that's all good. Unless we've stopped thinking about those who have yet to experience the love of God. Listen, here's the deal. People need real hope. People desperately need good news. People need fresh starts. People need reconciliation. People need an unfailing love. People need lasting freedom. Listen, there is a world full of hurting, searching, starving, confused, addicted, alone people. There is a world out there full of hate and anger and racism and poverty and imprisonment and violence. There is a world full of families that are broken or turn apart where abuse has come or abandonment has come or bitterness has come or resentment has come. And so we just can't get comfortable and forget that. Rescued people help rescue people. And saved people point people to their Savior. And people who are in stand by the door. This is written by Sam Shootmaker from the Oxford Group around Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says this. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use in my going way inside and staying there when there are still so many outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all so many ever find is the wall only where the door ought to be. And they creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. And the most important thing any of us can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks with the man's own touch. Men outside the door As starving beggars are dying on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, they die for what's within their grasp. They live just on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it. And open it. And walk in. And find him. So I stand by the door. Somebody must be watching for the frightened. Who seek to sneak out just where they came in. To tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving, preoccupied with just the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. 
then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as not to hear them and remember they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more importantly for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hand I intend to put on the latch so I stand by the door. Dangerous churches are made up of dangerous people willing to take dangerous risk to save people from a dangerous destiny. The heartbeat of the church should be the heartbeat of Jesus and you have never locked eyes with someone that he did not give his life for. So let's be dangerous. Let me pray for us, God. I thank you so much that the truth of what we're looking at today means that you've extended your amazing grace to our lives and we don't deserve it. And you've allowed us in. And God, you've changed and rewritten our stories. And so God, I just pray that we would never forget how amazing your grace is and how desperately this world needs your hope, a real hope, and God, we would move towards the mess the way that you did. And God, we remember what counts. And God, that we would stand by the door. And Father, I also pray for any person in this room today who's just walking in. I pray that they would maybe see for the first time that your church is supposed to be this awesome, safe, dangerous people on mission for God. Who are loving and accepting and welcoming. And I pray they would find that this is a safe place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.